The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I hope your Bible's already at Esther. That's where we'll be. Esther 3 and 4 will be our focus today. Hopefully you survived a, another week. Seems they come and they go. Another Sunday, another church service, another sermon, another thing in life. Last week we looked at the beginning of the story of Esther and we talked a little bit about how people in their lives want the God of Exodus. And what I mean by that is they want these experiences, like on Mount Sinai, they want these burning bush experiences. They, they want these times when they just feel God really speaking to them. And I wonder this morning if any of you had a week like that where you would say, that was me this week and God was just speaking to me God was just showing himself to me. God was revealing himself to me over and over and over and over again. My guess would be if we polled everybody, you might say that because you think it's the right thing to say, but you don't necessarily feel like that's what happened in your life. And so we're going to approach Esther and see the God of Esther again this morning, just like we talked about last week, the God who is faithfully working at all times, even behind the scenes when he's not being acknowledged. Even when he's not being discussed or being talked about, God is still there and God is still present and God's plan is still functioning perfectly. Even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of corruption, which we'll talk about this morning, God still has a plan. And it's a, it's a good and perfect plan. And if you're a child of God this morning, you need to remember that. No matter how your week seemed to be, no matter how faithful you were to God this week, know this, God is faithful to you this week. Very faithful. And we trust that he will continue to be faithful to us because his word tells us he will be faithful to us even as we approach Esther 3 and Esther I got to be quite honest, as a, as a pastor, this might be very bad to say, but Esther is not a book you look forward to preaching. I'm just being really blunt, I guess, especially trying to cover two chapters a week. It's, it's quite difficult. It's done in narrative. So it's a story that really does not make any sense unless you read it all. And so I'm trying to segment it out and trying to make sense of it. It can be hard. And so I want to encourage you to this week, if you haven't done it yet, please read all of Esther. It will really help as we approach this book together to just try to get a clear understanding of what God is doing here within, within these pages. And to remember that this is not a, a story of fiction. This is not a, a story of a fairy tale, of one that just has characters in it that are supposed to bring some thoughts to our mind. This is historical truth. These people really lived this Persian Empire existed. Haman was real. King Asurus or Xerxes, as we were calling him last week, real person. And so let's see together what God has here. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, After these things, King Asurus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes. Who are with him. Now, we need to stop there just briefly because this isn't what you would expect in reading a story like this. Because we ended chapter two, if you remember, of Mordecai 
being a champion of Mordecai hearing about a plot to kill the king. He gets word to the king. The king then dives in to see, is this true? Is this really happening? Is this really going to take place? It's found out, yes, there's an assassination attempt on the king's life. And Mordecai essentially saves the king. And so we see that the king says, hey, put this down in the book of Chronicles of what has happened here. And so when we roll into chapter three, and if I were to tell you, hey, in chapter three, somebody's going to be elevated, their status is going to be lifted up, you're going to say, it's Mordecai. Mordecai just saved the king's life, so the king's going to honor him and he's going to raise him up. But instead, what we see is we see a new character come into the picture here named Haman, and Haman is the one that is lifted up. Now, we have no reason to know or no way to know why this happened. We don't know why Haman was honored in this way. But what we see is we see the king making this decision. And I'm going to say that this was a bad decision. And the reason I'm going to say that is because as we continue on with this story, we're going to see this king continually make bad decisions. We saw it last week as well with how he treated the queen, with the edict that he made, with the competition that he put in place. All these different things that the king does seems to be bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And it continues as we go through chapters three and chapters four. Follow along with me now, verse two. It says, and all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Asuras, the people of Mordecai. So we have here within this story that Mordecai would not bow to Haman. Even though the king said everybody should bow to Haman, he's basically second in command over all of the kingdom. Mordecai refuses to bow. And so the question I think that needs that comes up when we read this is why? Why does Mordecai refuse to bow down to Haman here when the king strictly told everybody to do it? Well, I think there's really three options that are possible. Number one, maybe Mordecai had a stance that he would only bow before God. That only God would get this homage from him. But if you continue to read the book of Esther, you'll see that this really can't be the case because Later, Mordecai will bow before, before the king. So, so that can't be it, okay? The other reason maybe would be he was jealous of not being honored. Maybe he was angry. Maybe he looked at the situation and thought, man, that should be me. I saved the king's life. It was me that let the king know what was taking place, not Haman, and so I should be the one. And so maybe jealousy is what fueled this here. Now, I guess maybe this could be it, but most people say that the time span between chapter two and chapter three was about five years. And so if Mordecai was holding on to a grudge that long, he has even more issues than we, than we know of. So I don't think that that's it either. I think that what we see here is we actually see a feud that has extended for generations. 
And the, the Bible actually gives us hints of this, and it gave us hints of it earlier. If you remember in verse one that I just read, it says Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, we have to ask, why would we know this information? Why is this important? And actually, when it talks about Mordecai earlier, it gives us his lineage and his background as well. What we have is we have a man named Haman, and he is a descendant, the Bible is telling us, of King Agag. This is the king of the Amalekites. If you look in Exodus chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen as I read it. But in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 through 16, we're going to read of an encounter with the Amalekites. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So this is happening way back in the book of Exodus with, with Joshua and Moses and the people of Israel fighting, fighting these people. And the Lord even declares from that moment, I'm going to blot them out. But from generation to generation, Israel's going to have problems with these people. Going to have problems with them. Well, it doesn't end there, obviously, in Israel's story. Because if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul takes Israel and they're fighting against King Agag, fighting him. In fact, Israel overtakes them. And King Saul takes King Agag and takes him in, and God has strictly commanded him, kill all of them, everything. Plunder them completely. Destroy the Amalekites. But King Saul thinks, why would I do that? They got all kinds of possessions that we would like. They actually have some choice people. And so he takes King Agag, and he does not kill him. And the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that this is the moment then when God says, you're no longer my king. You're no longer the king of my people. At that moment in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul chose to disobey. Now, if you go back to Mordecai and we learn about Mordecai and you see what it says in Esther about Mordecai, it says Mordecai is a Benjamite. King Saul was a Benjamite. And so there was animosity for generations between the Benjamites and King Agag, of whom now we see Haman being a descendant of. Even though Samuel would kill Agag, some people say, just to be upfront, some people say that this maybe is a direct descendant of the king. Some say it's just referencing an enemy. And they called the Amalekites enemy. But I think this is the best reason that we can see in Scripture for Mordecai refusing to bow. It was as if I told you, hey, you're a Michigan fan? That guy's an Ohio State fan. You must hate him. 
That's just how it goes, right? That's how it was here. It was, you hate him. He's an Amalekite. He's an Agagite. You are a Benjamite. And so where there was this just pent up animosity that was built. And what we see happening in Esther is the feud continues. The hatred is so much here that Haman, we see, doesn't want Mordecai dead. Oh no, that wouldn't be enough. But Haman actually overreacts here. And he says, I want all of Mordecai's people to die. I want all of the Jews to die. And what we really see is we see the heart of Haman coming out in this situation, in this scenario. He obviously has a very racist heart towards the Jewish people, that he wants to see them dead. And sadly, if we look throughout human history, this seems to be pretty common thread throughout history of people wanting the Jews to die for whatever reason. But regardless of why he does this, regardless of why Haman chooses to overreact, what we see in verses 7 through 15 is we see the plans start to unfold. So follow along with me. It says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hasurus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Hasurus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the, king, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script and to every people in their language. In the name of King Hasurus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel, so the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. So here we see the plot that has been set and the plot that has been sealed by the king. It's interesting the way that Haman would decide what day should this be done? What day should we order everybody to go and kill their neighbors if they're Jewish, to go and annihilate this people, young, old, men, and women? The way that Haman decides this is it says they cast purr or they they cast a lot. Literally, they rolled the dice. I mean, that's, that's what it's being said here. They, they took the dice out and they, they cast it out. Now, it's hard to overlook certain aspects of this. When this would have happened, when this would have took place, when Haman would have been rolling the dice, would have been the time that the Jews were actually celebrating Passover. 
So the Jewish people at this time are celebrating the fact that God delivered them from death at the exact same time Haman is rolling the dice to figure out when he is going to put them to death. And I think, and I know Haman doesn't know this, but in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the Lord is very clear. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We learn from this that nothing is done by accident. Nothing is done by mistake. There is no luck of the draw. That God's in control of everything, even the simple roll of the dice to decide when this would happen or to decide when something would take place. And it was determined that it would be almost a year later. 11 months later was the, de- was the date that would be set. In verses eight through nine, we see how Haman would deceive King Xerxes because he goes in there and he tells them that all of the Jews disobey the law of the land, doesn't he? All we have recorded though in scripture is that Mordecai was. Only Mordecai was the one not bowing down, but it says everybody else was. And people were even going to Mordecai saying, hey, why aren't you bowing down? And we don't get an answer from that. But Haman decides to tell the king, all of the Jews disobey your laws. This is what they do as a people. And he tells the king, if we destroy the Jews and we plunder the Jews and we bring all this money back, it will fill the treasury back up. Now, I don't know of a political leader that doesn't enjoy money, and it seems as if this king is the same. Now, no doubt, he has been in war for a long time with Greece. He actually has lost those wars, and so he needs money probably in a bad way. And so one of the people that he trusts comes to him and says, listen, I can fill the treasury back up. This is all we need to do. I'm guessing that's all that need to be said. The king probably didn't need to hear anything else at this moment other than the money will be back. And then hearing that, the decision was made. Here's my ring. Here's whatever you need. The king makes a poor decision based off of whatever it is in his mind he wanted to base it off of. Now, before we, before we get on the king's case, I think we have to ask ourselves how we make decisions. I'm not telling you to go cast lots. That would seem easy to me. It'd take a lot of burden off. Hey, let's flip a coin. Yay or nay. And then I could just quote Proverbs 16 all the time. Well, God's going to decide. This is what he decided. Sorry. Or get excited. We're get to go now. I'd love to do that. But no, we don't make decisions that way. And I don't think that's how God wants us to make decisions. But I know money shouldn't be our driving factor either. Or prosperity or wealth or status. But yet this is what we see this king do over and over again, making poor decisions. So then in verses 12 through 15, the decree is made known to the people. And you notice the very end of chapter three. As the king and Haman sit back to drink and relax and be merry, it says the people of the city are very confused of why this is happening and why this is taking place. Which tells me even more, this was not all of the Jews disobeying the law. This was Mordecai disobeying the law, and Haman being mad at Mordecai. Well, then as we get to chapter four, verse one through three, that Pastor Scott read a little bit earlier, it tells us that Mordecai learns of everything that's taking place in verses one through three, and that Mordecai mourns what is happening. It says he tears his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and that he goes into the city and he cries out 
says that he weeps, he laments, and that he fasts. Now, the book of Esther says nothing about God. I told you it says nothing about prayer. Now, we could assume this is the closest we get to prayer because usually with fasting, you see prayer in scripture as well, but we, we don't see it here. We don't see it in this passage. I think it would be safe to assume that that's what's happening and that's what's taking place. But imagine if you can, just for a moment, the pain and the anguish that Mordecai has to feel. All of this that is happening is because of him. All of it. We can look at it and we can put blame on Haman. But if Mordecai would have just put his knee on the ground, all of his people wouldn't be close to losing their life at this moment. They would not be in this situation. They would not be facing this. And so he has to feel the weight of the nation on his shoulders. That the Jews would be completely annihilated because of his decision that he made not to honor Haman. And no doubt, the Jews of the land have to be perplexed and they have to be scared to death because they know that their fate has been sealed 11 months from that day. They're foreigners in this land. This is not their land. They are captive. They are held captive and all alone. They, they have no rights at all. And their worst fear has been realized. That the people of the land have decided, we don't want you here anymore. We don't like your kind. We don't need you. <clears throat> so we're going to get rid of you. Imagine being in that situation. Well, as we get to verses four through nine, Esther learns of this plot that is taking place. You would think being in the court that she would have firsthand experience and know what's going on, but she obviously doesn't. Because in verses four through nine, she tries to send some clothes to Mordecai. Mordecai will not accept them. He, he turns them away. So apparently Esther had been watching Mordecai. She wants him to be happy. But when Mordecai will not accept the clothes, Esther wants to know why he is mourning. And she comes to find out the reason why. Now, imagine being Esther, a queen in the king's court, but a Jewish queen. Nobody knows this, but that she is a, she is a Jewish queen and she is married to a very volatile king who she, who she knows already got rid of one queen. And so why not her? What would make her any more special? What would, what would make him save her when, the, when it was already issued and the law was passed that all Jews need to die? No matter who they are, they need to die. And so same with Esther. Her death has been sealed. But now the question is for her, what do I do now? The king doesn't know that I'm a Jew. The people of the court do not know that I'm a Jew, but I am and I care about my people is there any hope? Is there anything at this moment that I can do? Anything at all? So when you get to verses 10 through 17, you see Esther and Mordecai come up with a plan. Let's read that again. It says, Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. 
Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Esther knows in the situation that she finds herself that she, even though she is the queen, she just is not able to simply walk right into the king's throne room and to start talking to him. That's not how it worked in this town. Anybody who tried to do that would be killed immediately on the spot unless for some reason the king would point the golden scepter to them, thus saying, it's okay for them to speak, let them speak. Esther at this time we see has not been in the king's presence for a while and so maybe I'm reading into this some but maybe he's had enough of her. He seems to go through women pretty quickly. He seems to have a pretty big harem behind and so there's really no need for her anymore and so at least for 30 days she hasn't spoken to him or been in his presence at all. And so Esther knows I don't have his ear anymore. I don't have the opportunity to talk to him about anything. And if I approach this king and let's say he's having a bad day, I'm going to have a really bad day. My life could be over. Just like Vashti, just how he threw her away, why would he not throw me away? So there's this real dilemma going on in her head. And so then she goes to Mordecai, somebody she loves and trusts and gets word to him about this and maybe she expects him to come back and say, listen, God will help us. You just lay low. You just make sure that you're safe. Make sure that you're cared for. Don't do anything to upset him. We'll figure it out. But no, Mordecai returns response to Esther and says, listen, you're out of luck just as much as me. In fact, if you look at verse 14, Mordecai shows some great faith in God's grace to the Jewish people because he says this to Esther. He says, if you don't say anything, you and your father's house will die. But listen, the Jews will be saved. God will find a way to save us. God doesn't need you, Esther. But he goes on to say, but listen, Esther, maybe this is the reason you find yourself in the position you find yourself in. Maybe this crazy thing that has happened to us and all this time, maybe, just maybe, Maybe somebody's had a plan and is working in the midst of this, Esther. Maybe this will happen. Now, I want you to notice it's, it's not a certainty. He doesn't declare this to her. He doesn't say to her, Esther, you have been brought here just for this moment. He doesn't say that. He says, I don't know. But maybe this is it. Now, I don't know how comforting that would be to you if you were in Esther's position, but it wouldn't bring much comfort to me. Maybe. My life is on the line. I, I'm not going to go for maybe. I want to be assured that this is exactly what God has for me. Now, I've talked to people before just looking at a new job, and they freak out so much if this is God's will in their life. They almost have panic attacks. And you're just talking about changing jobs. 
We're talking about Esther going to die. Could die. If she approaches the king and he doesn't like what he sees or doesn't like what she has to say, it's over for her. And Mordecai tells her, maybe Esther, maybe this is why you're here. And we see Esther's response. Esther tells them, please, Mordecai, fast for me. Have the Jewish people fast for me. I will have the people in my house fast as well. We will fast. And she says one of the most courageous statements that you see in all of scripture. She says, I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I die, I die. What boldness we see from this woman in such a tough situation, in such a difficult situation. She doesn't think just of herself, but she's thinking of all these other people. And we see at this moment that she says, I am willing to be the mediator that is necessary to save our people. I am the one who will go and stand before the king to speak to him to try to free God's chosen people here. It really is a defining moment in her life. She doesn't freeze. She doesn't stop. She goes and she says, I will do this faithfully. I will be the one that goes and speaks to the king and puts my life on the line. Well, as we look at chapters three and we look at chapters four, what can we learn from this story? What, what, what does God have for us here? I, I wrote down five things that I'll speak to real briefly. Number one is this. We must be careful in managing our allegiance to God versus managing our allegiance to man. If this was ever more applicable than now, I don't know that. I don't know when that other time would be. Of asking, when do we say no to our governing authorities? When do we say yes to our governing authorities? When do we say they've crossed the line and that's only something God can determine for me? Verse Okay, I will obey what they have to say, even though I, I don't really like it, even though of this or that. I'm not here today to tell you the answer to that question. You need to do that as a faithful Christian on your own. I know this. When I look at this, Mordecai made a decision, did he not? He made a decision. Whether it was before God, I'm not going to do this, or he's one of those. I'm not bound to him. He's a jerk. His people have always been a jerk to me. I'm not going to listen to him. Whatever his attitude was, we know this. Because of his decision, the Jews find themselves in the, in the spot they find themselves in. Whether right or wrong, you could say, yeah, but look, God made it all work out. God used a lot of sin and dumb decisions to make things work out. That does not give us a right to sin. Does not give us a right to then go and make bad decisions and just say, I'm just kind of casting lots here. Let's see where God lets it lie. That's not how we work as Christians. And so we have to be careful when figuring this out and weeding through all these situations that we currently find ourselves weeding through. Because as Christians, we're not alone. We're together. We're united as the body of Christ. And so we have to be faithful even through those decisions. Number two, just like the Jews, we as Christians are foreigners in a land. And if I'm being quite honest, just waiting to hear the worst. Just waiting to hear the worst. 
I mean, I've heard this ever since being in this church, and I was in this church before I was born. Soon all of our rights will be taken away. Soon, to be a Christian, you'll have to go to jail. Soon, if you do this in school, you'll get detention and they'll kick you out. Everybody's going to make fun of you. Soon, this is going to happen. Just be ready for it. Be ready for it. We live in this state just like the Jewish people. We understand we are foreigners in this land as Christians. This is not our home. The rules that the outside world lives by are very different than the law that God has given us to live by. In fact, they hate his law. They will push against this law. And so we must expect it not to always go our way. We shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be awed by it. We know that it's coming. But that does not stop our faithfulness of honoring him, regardless of the situation. If our country were to decide Christianity is banned, we would have to understand they can't ban Christianity. Oh, they could stop us from meeting. They can throw us in prison. They can do all sorts of things to us. Don't get me wrong. They can put all kinds of laws in place that would say no longer can Christians live here. But that just, they can't do that because God controls the Christian faith. So we have to understand that. Number three, we see the importance of fasting and prayer during this difficult time. I want, I want to note just the hopelessness, just the hopelessness that was being felt in this moment. And oh, we see the faith of Mordecai in verse 14, like I said, when he would say, God will deliver us. But we just see the hopelessness here. And that hopelessness drew the people to the Lord through fasting. I'd love to sit and talk about fasting here for a moment, but there's just not time. But this is true fasting. When you're so hopeless and you're so hurting and you're so grieved and you're so worried and you're so whatever about this certain thing that you can't even eat. It's not about missing a meal. It's like, I can't even think about eating in this moment because of what's happening, because what's taking place. I can't even think for a second to smile or to be happy because, God, I'm, I'm hurting and I need you and I, I need to speak to you. That's the fasting that's taking place here. Not, I need to lose some pounds, I'm gonna fast. Not, oh, I think I might just do this, I'll, I'll skip the sweets for a few weeks. That's, that's not the fasting that we see anywhere in Scripture but we see just this fasting of a reliance on God, saying, God, we need you to move here. The fourth thing I, I think we can see in these chapters is the need to commit our life to God's purposes. What Esther is doing here is she is willing to take up her cross and follow him daily. Uh, I think of Rocky here. I think it was Rocky three, maybe. He fought the Russian or four, Rocky four, maybe. And you remember the Russian said at one point, if he dies, he dies. That's what he says. If he dies, he dies. I don't care. That's what I think of Esther. If I die, I die. Now, I can't believe she says it that way. Well, if I die, I die. I don't think that's her mood at all. But I think she realizes something. That maybe what Mordecai is saying is true. Maybe God does have me here for a purpose. Maybe God does have me here for a reason. Maybe it's to be a martyr for him. Or maybe... It's to be the mediator between the king and the people that he's about to annihilate. And so she says, whatever it takes, 
whatever it takes. I don't know where you are in your life with God, but are you able to say that to him honestly and openly? God, whatever it takes for me to be where I need to be, God, for whatever it takes for me to serve you how I should serve you, God, whatever it takes, let that be done so that I can be glorifying you in every area of my life. I would have to believe if we have a church full of people who say that, it's gonna be a church on fire. It's gonna be a church that's very active, that's very much on mission, that's very much ready and willing to share the gospel with the people around them, no matter what the cost. Ready to do whatever it takes to make disciples of all nations, as Jesus would say before he left. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if you're like me, at times that prayer gets really scary. Because we know when we say whatever it takes could mean whatever. <laughs> it might mean some things have to change in my life. It, it might mean some drastic things, some embarrassing things. But yet we see Esther here being willing to do that. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't point out, and this is the fifth thing. What Esther is kind of foreshadowing here is Christ, the mediator that we so need in our lives. You can see the parallels so clearly the situation that the Jewish people find them in is the same situation you currently find yourself in if you are not one of God's children. If you have not been saved by God's grace, listen, your date for annihilation is set. If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, the Bible tells us on that judgment day, you will be separated and that the thing that is waiting for you is annihilation, not once, forever. A forever annihilation. A forever experiencing the wrath of God. And that's what we as humans deserve. Because when we try to stand before the king, we do not deserve the golden scepter to come to us to hear us out. Because listen, even the best thing you can do, the Bible says, dirty, filthy rags. So why would the king ever let you in his presence? Why would the king for a moment ever allow you to even come and talk to him or to look at him or to even think about him? He shouldn't. It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be done. But just as Esther would say, listen, I will go before the king. We see in scripture that Jesus, the son of God, in obedience to the father would say, I will go before the king for them. And so we can speak about all these things that Jesus has done, justification, redemption, propitiation, all of this stuff, but I want to point to the fact that we need him as our mediator. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, it says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There is nobody on this planet who can go to God for you and speak to God to satisfy his wrath on you, except for Christ. 
Jesus is the only one. I can't do it. If I could do it, listen, we would have a line regardless of social distancing. We would have a line every week for you to come and I would pray or do whatever I needed to do so that you would be saved. I would do my best to do that. But I I can't do that. I just simply can't do that for you. This week, as I sit on the bedside of a man who is dying in his home and his family crowded around and they just want to know, is he going to heaven? I would have loved for nothing more than to say, yeah, absolutely. I just prayed for him. He's in. God told me he's in. I can't do that. They could give me money. They can do all kinds of stuff. I can't make that work out. He has to accept in his life that Christ is his mediator, that Jesus is the only one that can satisfy the wrath of God. And what we see later in Esther, I'm gonna skip ahead, okay? The king points the golden scepter. The king's wrath is satisfied. The Jews get saved because of a mediator. It's the same for us. We can be saved because Christ is our mediator. Christians, that should cause us to rejoice. That should cause us to be happy because now we get to be in the presence of the king. Because of Christ, we get to receive the golden scepter pointed at us. He wants to hear from us. We get to talk to our God. We get to hear from our God. We get to trust in him and know that he has a plan for us and it's, and it's good. Even if it means we take up our cross and die for him. No matter what, it's, it's good for us, his plan. Our prayer in preparing this sermon really was that somebody here this morning would understand their need for the mediator and to understand that we have the mediator we need in Christ and that you would trust in him, that you would seek forgiveness of sin that's found only in him because of what he did on the cross. And the Bible tells us that if you do that, you will be saved by him forever in his embrace, in his wrap. Not like the King Asurus who would push Esther aside after a few years You're old now. I've had enough of you. I'm going to move on to the next woman. We don't have that with our king. He loves us eternally and holds us forever. I'm going to ask you, would bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning. Matt's going to come. We're going to sing a song to close. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word how you feel you need to. And trust that God will work in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I thank you that Esther was willing to tell Mordecai, if I die, I die, but I I will go to the king. And God, in thinking of that, I'm thankful that God the Son, that Jesus would be obedient to the Father, not saying, if I die, I die, but knowing I will die because of them, for them. God, help that to be on our minds often as Christians. To think of what Christ has done for us, that that would motivate us to serve you faithfully. To be people who forgive others. To be people who show grace to others. To be people who are people of your word. God, help us with that. 
God, I pray for those people in here this morning who haven't been saved by your grace, who don't know. They don't know everything. They don't understand everything maybe yet. They, they're struggling through different things. God, I, I pray that you would draw them to you, that you would open their eyes to that truth, help them to see it. And God, I pray that by faith, that gift of faith, that they would respond to you. God, I thank you that you save people. I thank you, God, that when we had no way, you made a way for us. Hopeless, utterly hopeless. But then you step in and save us, God. We thank you for that. God, as we sing this last song to you, be honored, be glorified. Help us to respond during this time how we should to your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.